and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Today I'm excited to be joined by Theo Rosenschwag, co-founder and CEO at D2X. Theo, it's great to have you on. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. So let's go. Let's get right into it. Can you uh, walk us through your background pre-crypto? We we can even start at our, our McGill days, maybe. So yeah. Theo, Theo and I were were fraternity brothers, if if you can believe it, uh, back at McGill uh, a few years ago. So indeed, indeed. Goes back a, a few years now. Um, yeah, so um, I'm uh, I'm French originally. Grew up in uh, in Luxembourg, um, then moved to Canada for my studies. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, McGill is where we met. Uh, so I, I did a bachelor's in, in mathematics. That time, also really got interested in well financial markets in general. Uh, so I got my my first professional experiences uh, during that time as well. After after McGill, I moved to London and uh, basically started my career at Netixis, the French investment bank, where I was covering uh, hedge funds and asset managers for the volatility trading business. So really on the equity derivatives uh, side of things, trading lots of product, light exotics, but also a bit of flow and vanilla. One, one that uh, uh, really got my interest was dispersion trading, a really a fascinating product. Um, so I did that for a little while, um, eventually decided to, to leave the company and go back to school. So I did a graduate program in finance this time at the London Business School and then uh, received an offer from a company called All Options, which is a, a big uh, derivatives market maker based here in Amsterdam, uh, where I'm currently based as well. And uh, basically, I, I joined them to help them uh, set up new trading desks. Uh, so they were effectively uh, at that time rebuilding and restructuring lots of their core trading activities. So I joined and, and was a derivatives trader trading listed options first on the AEX, which is the Dutch index, then moved to single stocks, uh, first with a focus on the European tech sector uh, and European banks. This is also where I met Don, uh, who is uh, now the, the CTO and one of the three co-founders here at, at D2X, and that's where sort of the, the crypto journey uh, began. Yeah, and so why leave? You know, you, you just graduated business school, got a job at a top, you know, market maker, and very quickly left that job to start D2X. So why why start the firm? What was the opportunity or the problem that you saw in the market, and why crypto? Yeah, um, no, all uh, really interesting questions. I was actually in a in a good spot uh, at the time, really in a, in a job I I enjoyed. Also, uh, all options was uh, and still is a great company, so I really enjoyed my my time there. What happened essentially is Don came up to me one day and um, sort of piqued my interest for 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 the space. So he has more of a of a crypto background. He's been involved in the space since 2013 already. Had the first uh, company in in the in the industry as well, and. Um, Basically came up to me one day, said, uh, "Hey Theo, something interesting going on in the in the derivative segment of the digital asset space. Uh, you should have a look." And basically, we started doing some research uh, on on the asset class, 
uh, and, and derivatives in particular, and, and spotted a very interesting business case, but initially from a market making standpoint. So what we wanted to do at the start was set up a, was try and set up a new trading desk to basically start trading futures and options on, uh, on crypto and um, quickly realized that it was actually very difficult uh, for European institutions, uh, and especially if you're, if you're regulated. So All Options being a regulated company, we basically faced, we would have faced uh, lots of operational and regulatory hurdles to basically start trading the asset class and realized at the time that this was really the common theme in, in Europe for financial institutions. Basically, you want to get exposure to, to this new asset class, uh, but there are so many hurdles uh, in the way, so many risks, counterparty risk, credit risk, operational risks, uh, reputational risks uh, uh, also for, for, the larger, uh, for the larger players. And, uh, and then realize that fundamentally there was uh, the, an absence of, of a regulated market infrastructure uh, to allow institutions to trade, uh, to trade these products. And that's really when the sort of entrepreneurial mindset uh, kicked in uh, and it almost became a, an obsession. Uh, there was really the, this need for, for this market infrastructure and uh, we decided not to wait for someone else to build it. And so, yeah, tell me about D2X. So, so what is D2X? You know, when's it launching? Who are you servicing? And, and how's it different? And, and also a question that, you know, as, as a fellow entrepreneur, right, oftentimes when somebody originally sets out to build a business, what they end up building is a little bit or very different. So how has, you know, to this point, you know, you're about two years into this journey. So, you know, in addition to what is D2X, is how, how or is it different than what you initially set out to build? Yeah, so... Maybe I start with a, a small uh, um, introduction on, on D2X and what, what we're building. Uh, so what we're building is really the first pan-European exchange um, that will be a regulated trading venue where financial institutions will be able to trade futures and options initially on Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, so currently, if, if you look at, at the market, um, there are certain trading venues that are not regulated, typically based offshore, uh, the likes of Deribit, for example. Uh, and you have regulated entities uh, in the US. So if the CME would be a, a good example. But what we're building is really the first market infrastructure that will comply with European regulation and, and where basically these institutions will, will be able to, 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 trade, uh, to trade these products. We're uh, basically applying for a license, an MTF license here in the Netherlands, which is a license that we can then passport uh, throughout the EU and the EEA. Uh, it's a license we uh, applied for a few months ago now. We're basically interacting with the, the Dutch regulator uh, in order to yeah, obtain that license and go live, um, we believe, around March uh, 2023. Uh, so that, that's when we expect to, to go live. The types of clients we um, service are exclusively financial institutions. So we don't accept retail on the exchange. We only deal with regulated entities, typically based in, in the EU and EA, though there are certain exemptions that allow us to accept uh, members from other states as well. Um, so th these would be your, your typical uh, financial institutions, investment banks, hedge funds, asset managers, brokers, market makers. And, and what we're really building here is a sort of plug and play solution where institutions will be able to trade these products just like I would trade derivatives on any other asset class. And one of the ways we, we do that is by listing derivatives that are cash settled and denominated in euros. So this has pretty important implications. One, from a, an operational standpoint, there are 
there are no custodial hurdles um, with, with trading on D2X because everything is euro denominated. The other point is, uh, from a regulatory standpoint, we actually don't fall under crypto regulation because there are no digital assets flowing on the exchange, flowing through the exchange at any point. And uh, again, everything is, is euro denominated. So because we list derivatives, uh, we fall under a MIFID, EMIR, so sort of your traditional financial markets uh, regulation here uh, in Europe. Yeah, so, so that's really the, the approach that, that we had. What we decided to do was to go with a regulatory first approach. So the design of, of D2X is actually reverse engineered from the regulation. You, uh, you were asking also about uh, sort of the, the entrepreneurial journey here, uh, if, we, if we pivoted uh, since the start. And yeah, actually, I mean, did you always plan on being cash settled? Was it originally, was the goal originally just settle in crypto or? We, uh, yeah, quite early on, we decided to go for, for the cash settled uh, euro denominated uh, uh, route. The, the reason uh, being that, that we see that as, as the more uh, sort of institutional friendly product. What financial institutions care about is the exposure they get to the asset class, you know, so typically they will also re- report uh, at the end of the year and, uh, in, well, not in, not in crypto. Um, so if we can reduce uh, um, the, the operational hurdles, the regulatory hurdles by doing that, well, we, we think it's the, the right thing to do. Um, from a regulatory standpoint, many institutions are also simply not allowed uh, uh, to trade these products, whereas cash settled derivatives really fit. Uh, and, uh, and can they not trade methods. on the CME? So some institutions can definitely trade on, on the CME. What, what you will typically find is that the very large institutions will we'll already do that, uh, but the CME presents its own uh, own set of uh, flaws um, that, that we also try to, to improve. Uh, it's fundamentally quite expensive uh, for uh, for European institution to, to trade on the CME. You also have to align uh, to US regulation to, to some extent. Um, it, it does involve quite a few intermediaries and in our model, you could be directly trading uh, on the exchange. Uh, I was talking about some of uh, the, the CME's flaws. So, I mean, they did a pretty good job at, uh, at sort of d- delivering their, their crypto offering um, where they are struggling a little bit and where we think we can really improve the, the, the status quo is in terms of uh, margin requirements. So trading Bitcoin futures, for example, in the CME is not very capital efficient. And uh, we have a model in which basically we're building a, a hybrid version of sort of the traditional clearing model and the approach that you would see on, on crypto native trading venues like FTX, like Deribit. And what that does is we have a, a much more capital efficient experience of trading uh, with lower margin requirements to, in order to cover for, for the same amount of risk. That's possible um, thanks to two things. One is uh, the fact that we'll have longer trading hours uh, than the CME, so we don't we basically don't have this weekend gap, for example, that, uh, that they would have. And the other thing is uh, cross-margining uh, that many crypto-native trading venues uh, uh, do, not, uh, do not facilitate. We're also partnering up with a, with a tier one EU bank that will uh, effectively hold all the, the collateral, uh, which will be in euros as well, uh, for us because we can do that. We're not a bank. And effectively, by, by doing that, we also mitigate lots of other risks that, that you would have as an institution when trading on, on crypto-native trading venues. The, the, the main problem when you trade uh, uh, on, on these crypto-native trading venues is effectively you have counterparty risk towards the exchange, 
right? Uh, you're actually trading against the exchange. So if the exchange goes uh, goes bust, well, you're left with nothing. Typically, they're not regulated, not audited. So it, it's quite risky. Typically, the, the, the trading is also pre-funded, meaning you deposit collateral to the, to the exchange, uh, which means that uh, you also have credit risk uh, towards, uh, towards the exchange. In our model, we're never counterparty to the trades, and the collateral is held with our banking partner. Uh, so what that means is, as an institution, you trade on D2X, you have zero exposure to the exchange. And so, you know, th there are so many crypto exchanges, right? There are hundreds, if not thousands of these things, right? You know, most of those exchanges are spot. Why do you think there are so few derivatives exchanges and so many spot exchanges? Yeah, so I, I think there are two reasons, two main reasons. I, I think the first one is really um, a function of the maturity uh, of the asset class. In order to have a, a liquid derivatives market, you need a very liquid spot market. So we're talking about an asset class that's still uh, quite young. It, it is becoming uh, uh, quite liquid and, and more and more liquid by, by the day. Um, so, so now, basically, you see uh, the business case for derivatives starting to make more sense. Had you uh, uh, launched a, a crypto derivatives exchange 10 years ago, uh, it would have been very difficult to, to get any, any liquidity on, on the exchange simply because spot wasn't as, uh, as liquid. If we dig a little bit deeper into that, I think yeah, the, the natural evolution is typically you start with spot, uh, then you have a futures market, and then only you would have a, an options uh, market. So right now, if, if you look at uh, the state of the, of, 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 the, of the asset class, options are still relatively illiquid. That's partly due to the lack of institutional grade market infrastructure, because these are uh, institutional products, typically. But yeah, with, uh, with, with solutions like, uh, like ours, we really uh, uh, expect to see the options market uh, develop uh, much further. The other, uh, the other reason why there are so many spot uh, exchanges and not so many crypto derivatives exchange is the complexity uh, of, of the market infrastructure that is required to basically have a, have, have a liquid derivatives market. When, when you start introducing derivatives, you start introducing basically uh, risk management because you have to post collateral. So that uh, introduces uh, risks like uh, liquidation risk and, and, and all these things that you wouldn't necessarily have with spot. And also from a, from a, a technical standpoint, and, and that's something we're experiencing at, at the moment, building the, the infrastructure for, for derivatives exchange is actually much more complicated than, than spot. And it's also extremely latency uh, sensitive. And so if we look at traditional markets, whether it be spot or derivatives, those, those are very consolidated markets, right? There, there are very few exchanges. There are very few players. Do you think we'll eventually see that same consolidation within the crypto derivatives you know, space? You know, one of the things that we've kind of you know, seen you know, previously is derivatives exchanges in crypto popping up becoming regulated in specific jurisdictions and then getting acquired, right? And there's, there's I think, RSX and LedgerX are two examples of that, right? You know, where do you think D2X fits in that picture? Like, do you view yourself as an acquisition target for a larger exchange that wants to, you know, FTX wants a regulated derivatives exchange in Europe, they come out and buy you, or do you, I mean, or is your plan to go out and compete? And, and do you think there can be a large number of players in the space? Yeah, so I'll start by answering the, the first question on, on consolidation. I think there is a, there's definitely a case uh, 
to say that we will see some consolidation. Uh, at the end of the day, crypto is, uh, is an asset class. Uh, so what we see in, in the, the more traditional asset classes is likely to sort of repeat itself here. Um, consolidation doesn't mean it's, doesn't mean it's a winner-takes-all uh, type of business. Uh, I think if you look at other asset classes, what, what you typically see is yeah, two to three players that each have a set of, of USPs, you know, and, and they will have a, um, a specific focus and then basically share, uh, share the market. There's also typically a, a, a geographical uh, split uh, with these. So well, like for, all, for every asset class, uh, you basically have exchanges in, in the US, in Europe, in Asia. Um, and, and the reason there, there is this split is mainly regulatory, uh, regulatory reasons. So we also expect consolidation, um, but yeah. It doesn't have to be a, a winner takes all. So, so we really think that uh, uh, there's a big gap here in Europe, and, and that's effectively what we want to, to capture. Um, to your uh, your your second question on on the ambition for for D2X, uh, we're, we're not building uh, this to to get acquired. The ambition is is much bigger than that. What we want to to become is really the the leading market infrastructure for for digital assets. Um, so. Our angle initially is, is derivatives, uh, so we're building market infrastructure, regulated market infrastructure for, for derivatives, and, uh, and and we want to to expand both in terms of the, the products that we list, uh, the, the the features that you would have on the exchange, and really all, all the services that, that we could provide. Uh, the name D2X Group also hints uh, uh, towards that, towards this ambition to to do more. Um, that, that's not to say that there will never be a, a, a merger or, or, or anything like that. I think we're, we're pretty open to, to everything. I expect uh, that, uh, that there will be a, quite some interest, especially when, when we get the license. Um, but yeah, the, the, the ambition is, uh, is to, to bring D2X as far as possible, and then uh, we'll see what happens. And so... Speaking about, you know, a lot of what this conversation is around is regulation, right? You guys are taking a regulatory first approach, focused on regulation in Europe. But how is regulation in Europe different than that in the United States? You know, what what are kind of, you know, is it more challenging to get licensed in Europe than it is in the US? You know, and, and what actual licenses do, do you need? I mean, I know you mentioned a specific uh, Dutch license that you were talking about. And so what are kind of the challenges of, of obtaining those licenses? There's really two parts, right? How is the U.S. different? For, how is Europe different than the U.S.? And what do you actually need in the in, in in Europe to become fully regulated? And what's that process look like? Yeah, so I think it's quite important to uh, make a distinction between crypto regulation and financial markets regulation. Um, so in Europe, for example, if you look at at crypto regulation, there's this um, uh, regulation that uh, has been passed and and will be implemented in the coming years called uh, uh, MiCA. This will basically regulate digital assets as, as an asset class and also service providers and, and so on. It's actually not a piece of regulation that we will fall under. The reason, again, being that we do cash settle derivatives that are denominated in euros. So actually, our products, they fall under MIFID, uh, which is really the, the sort of traditional uh, financial markets regulation here uh, in, in Europe, if you will. And, and it's really important to, to understand that Getting a crypto license or getting a license under, under MIFID is, is actually quite different. Um, there are many jurisdictions in which you can also get local licenses in Europe, and that actually uh, 
uh, will also answer part, part of the question on, on the differences between the EU and the US. The, the problem right now in the EU, when you look at crypto regulation, is it's extremely fragmented, right? So now Mika will come into play, but until then, every jurisdiction has its own uh, sort of local framework. And what that means is if you're, for example, a Dutch exchange and you want to deal with uh, French clients, well, you would need a license here in the Netherlands, but also one in France. So it, it makes everything very fragmented. It's not very scalable. Uh, and you would need jurisdictions in every, uh, sorry, you would need uh, licenses in every jurisdiction you want to, to, to operate in. The reason we decided to go uh, and, and to design the, the, the model to, to make it work under MIFID is so that we can have a license that we can passport throughout Europe because MIFID applies to the EU uh, as a whole. And, uh, and that's really uh, sort of this, this framework that, that we know that we're comfortable uh, navigating and that institutions uh, are also familiar with. So it makes it quite easy uh, for, for them uh, as well. I think if you look at traditional uh, sort of TradFi regulation, I would argue it's quite similar uh, in, the, in the US and the EU. Of course, there are, uh, there, are, there are differences, but sort of the idea behind this is really the same. But crypto regulation, it's, it's only just, uh, just starting uh, here, in, here in Europe. And uh, yeah, I'm actually not an expert on, on US uh, regulations so and not able to I'm not, I wasn't asking for the most in-depth answer there. Don't worry about it, Theo. But, but a question, you know, you, you've talked a lot about, you know, basically trying to fit into, you know, and, and you are, you are, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, given that your cash settled, you know, operating more like a TradFi exchange, kind of like the CME offering cash settled in the US, right? And so why can't any other European derivatives exchange that offers more traditional assets just offer the same exact service that you're trying to provide? Yeah, great question. Uh, so, so there are a couple of reasons. First, I'd like to point out we often refer ourselves as refer to ourselves as a um, hybrid type of player. The D2X is really a, a hybrid between TradFi and and the, the crypto ecosystem. So we we try to take the best uh, out of both worlds and really bridge the gap uh, between the two. There, there's fundamentally a lot of value, lots of interesting uh, aspects in, in both uh, segments, and we basically try to, to straddle uh, these two uh, areas. If you look at the, the TradFi uh, regulated exchanges, so in, in Europe it would be like Eurex, Euronext, there's a, a problem that they're facing uh, around clearing in particular. Uh, so they typically operate under different kinds of licenses. So if you look at the derivatives offering of, of Eurex or Euronex, these regulated exchanges, they will do that under a license called uh, Regulated Market, uh, which is a different license than the one we're applying for. And this license actually requires you to have your derivatives cleared. So then the question would be, so why don't they just clear it? And the problem is that the clearinghouse is actually typically uh, independence. So sometimes it's integrated within a group, but unlike the US where uh, it's actually much more uh, aligned, the, the regulatory process here to basically start clearing new products is actually quite lengthy. And if you look at, at the EU, there are no uh, CCPs, so no clearing houses that are clearing these products. So they're basically not able to, to, to list these products. So what they will try to do is basically find different kinds of products. So they will have, for example, a Bitcoin ETN, and then they will list futures on that, but that is a different animal um, in, in that sense. So it's mainly for, for regulatory reasons. 
And I, I would argue they're also uh, a, a bit slow, uh, these institutions. That's a problem that comes with, uh, with size. Um, the demand is, is clearly there, uh, but, but it's uh, basically a sort of new infrastructure that, that they have to build. And if you look at how it happened in, in the U.S. With, with the large exchanges, is they will often uh, look at acquiring smaller players. So rather than, than building it themselves, they're just waiting for, for someone to do it, and then they try to acquire it. And so, you know, you guys are launching in March, right? And on, on you know, the, the second you launch, right, you have no existing clients, right? Obviously, you have to go in and you have to, you're building this from, from, from scratch, right? The CME came out with the C, CME's list of clients, right? You know, but granted, every, Binance started with no clients either, right? You got to start somewhere. So how do you go about attracting liquidity to a newly launched exchange, right? I'm assuming, you know, attracting market makers is probably easier, but how do you attract the takers uh, on that exchange? Sure. So I'll start with the with the, the first piece. So really on the on the liquidity side of things. So we're already backed uh, by uh, by several market makers, and and we have very strong connection and ties with with the market making ecosystem here in Europe. So you, you can think of uh, of all the the large traditional market makers that are trading every asset class um, and that are now also trading crypto or crypto related products. The way we attract them is done in, in sort of two ways. The, the first one is uh, by an investment. Uh, so, so sort of these strategic uh, types of investments, these partnerships. And the second one is by uh, uh, designing a model to incentivize them that is actually closer to how they trade uh, in TradFi. So if you look at, at the crypto native uh, world, you typically have taker and maker fees uh, that are basically designed to try and incentivize uh, liquidity. Our approach is actually that of TradFi, where we have market maker programs. So what, what that does is effectively, you basically almost pay for, for liquidity uh, in a way. So these are essentially quote requirements where we tell the market maker, if you quote this amount of size on this, on this uh, number of products for this amount of time, you will get rebates on, on your trading fees. And this is a model that market makers uh, are used to and that works uh, really well. So, so this is really how we uh, get the liquidity uh, piece uh, and that has gone very well uh, so far. So we already have a, a long list of, uh, of market makers that will trade uh, from day one. Now you we were also talking about um, the takers, uh, so really the order flow, which of course is, uh, is really a chicken and egg game with, uh, with liquidity. Our strategy here is to basically go after the prime brokers. So by doing that, we uh, sort of open up to uh, a very- You mean the, the traditional as opposed to the crypto prime brokers? Correct. So some of them are also hybrid. Uh, some of them are also straddling both uh, both spaces and, and these would be good candidates for to be prime brokers on D2X. But uh, indeed the, the, the large uh, traditional ones um, that basically would be able to, to trade on D2X because they're regulated. Uh, we also target them, and then they will effectively redirect the order flow from from their end clients to to us. Uh, another way we approach this is via these uh, liquidity aggregators and RFQ type of platforms. Uh, Paradigm is is an example uh, because we'll also have a block trading facility uh, on the exchange. So just by being plugged on these um, on these uh, services. We'll, we expect uh, quite some order flow to to land uh, on D2X, and actually, it's quite interesting for for both market makers and 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 takers 
that we're not just capturing a part of an existing market, we're also creating a new market. And, and the reason I say that is right now there are many institutions in Europe that, are, that basically want to trade the asset class but haven't found a, a way to do it. So there's basically all this order flow that's just sitting and, uh, and not really being uh, and it's not really executed anywhere. And once we develop that regulated market infrastructure and bring it to these institutions, these will be basically new flows uh, that, that, we, that we will start seeing in the asset class. And so you mentioned Paradigm. You know, Paradigm is primarily Deribit. I guess there is some CME trading mixed in there, but it's primarily, you know, Deribit settled trades. Do those folks care about interacting with a regulated European exchange? Why should they care about D2X? Yeah, so at the end of the day, it's really the, the end clients, right? Uh, some end clients that, that could be uh, using Paradigm might be required from regulatory standpoint to, uh, to execute on a, a regulated trading venue. So it really depends on, on the end client. And, and I think to your, to, your, to your benefit, right? Like, you know, a point you made earlier, the CME is only open Monday to Friday. So maybe they are trading on the CME on Deribit, but you're offering them a weekend option too. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so there's that. And then, of course, uh, there are other advantages to, to trading on D2X. Capital efficiency uh, is something that uh, we talked about. And um, we also talked about certain types of risk. You know, the fact that crypto-native trading venues uh, present lo- lots of risk, counterparty risk, credit risk towards the exchange. Well, we don't have that. So whether you're, you have to trade on regulated trading venue or not, I would expect most institutions to want to trade on a venue that is both liquid and, and, and safe uh, in that sense. And so, you know, we talked a lot about regulation, getting the exchange off the ground. You know, let's talk a little bit about the actual client landscape and makeup in Europe, right? You know, how does that compare between, between the Europe and the U.S.? I mean, one of the things that I constantly hear is that, you know, European institutions are just slower moving. Uh, and we have some experience working with uh, a few of the banks in Europe. And it's been a painful experience just in terms of the amount of compliance. And, uh, you know, I would, I'm just going to say nonsense that we've had to deal with uh, to kind of get them, you know, and, and just kind of filling this back and forth. But I'm, I'm curious, like, Obviously, there's a ton of, of, of activity in crypto in, in Europe, but how does that compare to the U.S.? And you know, since you started about two years ago, has that accelerated? Is it, do you think it's accelerating as fast as other jurisdictions? So I would argue it's uh, actually quite similar. Uh, I think the landscape is, is pretty similar, uh, and especially in the, in, in the derivative space. Um, if you look at, at funds, for example, so on, on the buy side, there's not really a difference because oftentimes the funds are based uh, offshore or in the UK, for example, but they will have different entities and trade uh, both in the US and Europe. So I think for the buy side, it's actually quite similar. And then, so here in Amsterdam, for example, you have this very active market making ecosystem, uh, which is actually quite similar to, to the one in, in Chicago, for, for example. So there's a lot of similarities. If you look at adoption and that applies to everything. So every every asset class, every type of product. The US typically leads. Asia is also usually pretty fast in, in adopting, and and the EU uh, typically lags uh, by yeah, a year, eighteen months maybe. This is actually quite good for us because uh, we can simply look at what's going on in the US and and prepare that for for the EU. But I think it's quite interesting to to see how institutions are now reacting to to the current price action, for example. Uh, where in, in previous um, 
their markets, you actually felt institutions really losing interest in the space and, you know, getting cold feet. I mean, I think the best, the best example of that, right, is the fact that everyone's like, oh, crypto is correlated to traditional assets. I'm like, yeah, that means institutions are here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's not retail anymore. No, indeed, exactly. So so there's really this trend of institutionalization. uh, And we see that uh, across all, all, all geographies. So I actually have a selfish question because this is actually a question that I want to know the answer to personally. What is the TAM in Europe for you guys? How big is the market? How many crypto hedge funds do you think there are in Europe or hedge funds that are interacting with crypto? You know, how many potential clients? I mean, this is a question that I ask. Like, I'm, you know, we, we just set up an office in Singapore. Uh, we're still trying to hire people in Singapore, by the way. We've been trying for months. So if anyone's listening, wants to work for us in Singapore, send me a message. But in Europe, this is a question we have as well is like, should we set up an office in London? Like how big is the addressable market? You know, we, we go a lot of times for conferences, right? You know, and, and I'm sure we'll see you at, at DAS London and a few of the other ones coming up soon. But, you know, h- how many players are there and, and how many crypto natives? But more importantly, like how many of these traditional guys or what percentage of them do you think are, are going to get into crypto once you enter the space? So it's really a question of... Uh of timeline, you know, uh, I think at the very start, so when, when we launch uh, around March next year, um, we don't expect every institution to, to come on board, but we expect every institution to know what we're doing and and, and start basically. Uh, uh, and do you have any idea of how many every institution is? Is it, are we talking about a thousand organizations? Are we talking about 5,000? Do you have like a, a general sense? This is a selfish question, by the way. It's just so the audience knows. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> It's always, you know, the, what defines an institution. Uh, yeah, in uh, crypto, it's a very big word. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think uh, a, a lot of uh, small trading desks uh, that made uh, a lot of money during bull runs uh, now call themselves uh, institutions. Uh, so, so in our definition of, of an institution, it's basically um, a sort of professional clients. Um, basically, anyone who set up an LLC or better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, it's like uh, I mean, there are of course uh, hundreds of uh, hundreds of, of really large players that that, that we can target uh, here in Europe. Um, so, so the large asset managers, there is uh, uh, many of them as well that that will trade. Yes, guess it's difficult to to put a number on it, and we don't. Yeah, I mean, be, I mean, for perspective, of, I mean. This yeah. is a question that I struggle with all the time. Coinbase Institutional, I believe, has around 3,000 clients. Falcon X is about 1,500, right? And, and, and there's a few others. I think Fireblock says they have around 1,800 or 2,000 clients, right? So obviously, there's going to be high net worth in retail mixed in. There's going to be foundations. But I presume a token foundation could hypothetically trade with you too. They're also doing treasury management, right? So it's this... It's this, it's this very difficult question, but we think there's like 6,000 or so tr- traditional hedge funds that exist in the world that are like legitimate real hedge funds. But to your point, we uh, there are a lot of mom and pop operations that exist in crypto too that maybe don't fall under that, that broad definition. Yeah. So the, the way we look at it is uh, more in terms of volumes. To, to us, it's, it's much easier to try and engage that. Um, so if you, if you look at derivatives, you're consistently above... Uh, uh, around yeah, three trillion dollars uh, per month in, in volume right now in the space. That's worldwide, of course. And what we forecast uh, it's notional volume, or yes, okay. So what we what we forecast uh, um, uh, during our first year of operations is 
between uh, 30 and 50 billion. Uh, and that, that would be uh, that would be for for the first year, and that assumes a relatively small uh, small market share. So, the the way we uh, approach that was to look at volumes in the U.S. and try to convert that into what we believe would be a, a reasonable estimate for for Europe, looking at the ratio uh, for other asset classes. And we also assume this time lag that I was. You mean uh, how, how much crypto is traded euro denominated? I have to imagine it's a pretty small. I mean, because most people in crypto are just trading with like not even U.S. dollars, but with you know stable coins. Yeah, it's uh, actually quite quite difficult to to, to estimate, uh, to be honest, because a lot of it is also OTC, so it's uh, it's difficult to, to get a good measure. If you look at I mean, Europe, do, do you for example, the, they're still um, relatively liquid. Do you think the asset managers in in Europe that are trading crypto with OTC desk, like take, uh, you know, somebody we both, we both are friends with. I just had the Cumberland folks on, uh, on the podcast or winner mute or anyone else. Do you think they're trading, um, they're trading Euro denominated a lot of the time? I, I don't think they are, but I don't think they would mind. Um, okay. so if you look at, especially at the trade uh, players, it's, it's not a problem, you know, to trade in, in, in different currencies, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of European, uh, market makers that, do most of their operations in Europe. It's basically one-to-one anyways at this point. So. <laughs> Sorry? I said it's effectively one-to-one anyways at this point. I mean, a euro exactly. and a dollar are basically exactly It's pretty much part. the same thing. <laughs> it's a fork of the same... Uh... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We'll see which one is algorithmic and we'll go to zero first. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but effectively, this it's a small FX exposure that, that some of them will take. But, you know, these are typically hedged... Uh, Top level, uh, so they don't hedge that per trade. You know, it's, it's very it's easy price. to hedge the U.S. dollar euro pair. That's a very liquid market. <laughs> it's pretty liquid. <laughs> and so, you know, you talked about launching. You said March, I believe. So that's the target. Yes, the target. Okay, got it. So, look, that's a that's a long time from now in crypto. I actually had written down a question: Are you nervous about launching under current market conditions? But who knows what crypto is going to look like in in March? And so, do you do you think it? it do you think these current market conditions have any impact on your roadmap, change anything, change institutional adoption? I mean, current price action uh, definitely could have had uh, an adverse impact on, on launch uh, had we launched now. But as we were saying, it, it, it really does feel like this time institutional appetite is, is still there. Uh, there are some really serious uh, initiatives that are taken by most large institutional players uh, in the space. And, and I think everyone understands now that it's, it, it is really its own asset class. It's here to stay. These market conditions are also really great time to, to build. I think a, a lot of people say that, but I actually really do agree. Uh, it, it's in a way a test of, of, uh, of resilience. So, so I think it's quite healthy also to have these uh, uh, sort of market corrections that corrects this exuberance that, that you get sometimes in in, uh, in crypto, if you look at the derivative space in particular, uh, it's actually extremely resilient to, to, to price action, which is great. If you look at derivatives volumes, they're, they're actually quite stable, even during current market conditions, and they're increasing pretty much uh, month on month, both uh, in absolute terms, but also relative to spot. It's also uh, interesting to note that if you look at spot versus derivatives in crypto, that they, they were around 50-50 uh, uh, for, for a number of, uh, of months. And, and now you're now seeing basically derivatives volumes really starting to, to pick up and, uh, and are now representing a, a larger share of the, the overall volume. And what we see 
in, in traditional asset classes is that derivatives volumes will typically converge to an order of magnitude above spot. Uh, and we expect to see that in crypto as well. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, D2X and launching the exchange and all the things around it. But how many products are you planning on launching? Like how many assets do you want to support? You know, obviously the CME is just Bitcoin and ETH at this point, but you know, there are a large number of assets out there. Like where do you see the opportunity or, or where do you at least initially plan on launching? Right. So we're starting with um, a relatively small selection of of products uh, initially. Uh, So that's futures and options on on Bitcoin and and Ethereum. So quite aligned with, with the CME in that sense. We are looking at other underlyings. Uh, it, it would be very easy for us to start adding a, a new underlying. So in there, on Deribit, for example, you have uh, Solana futures and options now. So it would be a good candidate for, for us as well. What we look at is really the liquidity of, of the underlying. We expect uh, uh, large sizes to, to be traded by, by institutions on, on D2X. So we basically need to ensure that when we list a product, there will be sufficient liquidity uh, for it. The, the Luna uh, uh, crisis was an interesting case study uh, for us as well. It shows that uh, even the, the relatively large market caps are actually uh, not always safe in terms of product listing. And then uh, we have lots of uh, uh, very good ideas of different types of products that, that we want to list, different types of, of derivatives, uh, but we'll keep those as a, as a surprise. And so, so you mentioned you know, ensuring that spot markets are liquid enough. How do you go about reference pricing for, are you, are you building your own reference price in house? Cause like one of the things that happened back in the day, and I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but BitMEX, their reference pricing used to be basically an equally weighted price among four or five exchanges of which either ItBit or Bitstamp was one of them. And people realized they could fuck with the underlying price on one of the illiquid exchanges to basically cause cascading liquidations and crash the entire market on BitMEX. Uh, and BitMEX is, by the way, a long time ago, they fixed that problem. This was fixed two or three years ago, but curious how you think about reference pricing in this space. Yeah, so in our case, there are two important considerations. Uh, one is regulation, again, um, in order for us to... Your favorite uh, word. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I dream of regulation these days. Um so in Europe, there's a piece of regulation called BMR that basically regulates uh, benchmarks. And because we uh, price our derivatives, because we settle our derivatives over, uh, over an index, right? They're, they're cash settled. We need to comply with this piece of, uh, of, uh, of regulation. It also requires a license. So it's not a benchmark that we can structure ourselves. Uh, and we partner with a company called Vinter. Uh, that is on the SMI register, that is uh, BMR compliant, and they basically uh, uh, designed and structured the, the Bitcoin Euro uh, uh, D2X reference rate and the ETH Euro uh, reference rate as well. And is, so, it, so, is this pretty similar to any? They're also providing reference rates for ETFs, right? Or Correct. Okay. Uh, so the, the methodology is uh, uh, pretty similar to the, the one the CME is using uh, with, with CF benchmarks. And, and, and you were asking about um, sort of how, how we go about yeah, structuring these, what are the important considerations. And here, the goal is really to make price manipulation uh, almost impossible. So Venter has done a, a really great job at defining a methodology that is quite robust to manipulation. Uh, and they will look at a large number of, of, of trading venues that are deemed, um, well, first of all, somewhat regulated and, and liquid <laughs> enough. 
and uh, and they have yeah this methodology that is uh, very robust by by design. For us, it was really important also that the reference rate uh, is fully independent from from D2X, so that you actually do not trigger any any sort of liquidations uh, uh, based on events that would happen on uh, on the exchange itself. And so we have a lot of. I don't know if drama is the right, right word in the U.S., but maybe it's drama around securities laws, right? And and Gary Gensler in the U.S. basically alluding to the fact that everything other than Bitcoin is a security. So how does that impact? Uh, not how does that impact? That doesn't impact you being European regulated, right? But what? how are European regulators thinking about crypto? Is there that same talk about these assets being securities? And if so, is that kind of something that would preclude you or, or is currently precluding you from thinking about listing more at the start or is it really just about liquidity right no so it, it doesn't really impact us uh, i think it, it would have an impact on the industry overall of course li- liquidity uh, in the us um, and you're also- cash settled right so i guess you're not even list i mean you are trading sec- you're trading securities but they're not they're not i mean they're not crypto it's not underlying crypto yeah, it's not securities per se. It's, it's really derivative, so it's financial right, right. products. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, I think in Europe, in any case, we have a, a more nuanced approach uh, to this. Um, I think regulators uh, and the European Commission has done a, a really good job so far at going about this this asset class, and and with pieces of regulation like Mika, uh, you see a, an approach that is quite smart and 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 really tailored to to this new asset class. In the US, it feels like. It's, they try to classify these as securities mainly for oversight. Uh, so, so depending on how it's classified, different regulators will, will basically have oversight on, on these and everyone is trying to sort of make it fit under their, uh, their category uh, in that sense. And that's also a big difference between the US and, and Europe. In the US, you have different regulators uh, for financial markets. In Europe, it's much more consolidated uh, in that sense. So we wouldn't have... Uh, the equivalent of both the SEC and the CFTC. And so let's kind of get into the, the the meat of what this podcast is all about, which is, you know, crypto fundamentals. So, you know, let's do it. Let's do, you know, let's do a speed run here. So let's do kind of quick, quick answers to all these questions. But, you know, what do you think are the key drivers and, and determinants of, of price movement in crypto? Right? What is driving the price of Bitcoin ETH today? Yeah, I think crypto is a pure uh, supply and demand uh, dynamic. It reacts pretty fast to, uh, to to certain news, and it's quite sensitive to. It's still quite sensitive to to large uh, large trades. Uh, so, so I think yeah, large desks that are moving uh, uh, size will impact uh, price a lot. And so, you know, the one question that we've asked in every single episode uh, of the podcast is is fundamentals. So, you know, it's the fundamental value podcast after all. So, you know, how do you define fundamentals for digital assets or how do you begin to think about them? Yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting, uh, interesting part of the, yeah, an interesting question, really. I think, you know, coming from a TradFi background, uh, uh, I like to have a rational approach with these things. So the fundamentals are really around tokenomics, you know, again, supply and demand. Uh, for, for a lot of these things, the um, the, the fundamentals uh, are also really impacted by 
the consensus uh, mechanism. Um, so, for example, if you stake, if they're staking rewards, that of course has a big uh, implication in terms of value and, and pricing. So, so yeah, to me, these are really the the main components, and and then the demand is actually really coming from uh, the, the adoption of the underlying technology. Uh, so, if you look at uh, Ethereum, for example, the demand for for ETH is really a, a function of the adoption of of the blockchain. Uh, and I think that's a really important point. Some people see crypto as a speculative uh, asset class. In reality, it's more, uh, it almost feels like a, a commodity or the input and output of, of, uh, of a new technology, of a new ecosystem. And so fast forward 24 months from now, obviously you're mostly focused on the top two tokens. Let's, let's actually, you know, I've been asking clients uh, or I've been asking guests about, you know, top 100 tokens by market cap, how many will be left 24 months from now? But I think you're focused more on the top at this point. So let's start with the top 10. Out of the top 10 assets by market cap, let's take stable coins out of that equation. How many of the top 10 assets will be left two years from now? Not left, but still in the top 10, right? And how many are going to be replaced? Yeah, I think probably uh, four or five, I would say. Uh, I think Bitcoin, definitely. I think Ether, definitely. And I, I can give you the list, actually. It's super easy. So Bitcoin, Ethereum, Binance Coin, XRP, Cardano, Solana, Dogecoin, Polkadot, Shiba Inu, oh God, and Polygon is the top 10 right now. Yeah, so I think the, the actually the top five are quite likely to, to still be in there. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see... Uh, FTT going in, in, in there as well. I think these, uh, yeah, Dogecoins, uh, Shiba coins, uh, I don't expect them to, to, to last very long. Maybe they'll still be there, but uh, I don't expect them to, to be there on, on the long run. Um, I think exchange tokens uh, will definitely uh, have, a place, uh, have a place there. So yeah, Binance coin, I think is a good candidate. And so do, does crypto have any real world use case, right? I mean, we talked, you know, you, you mentioned where do you think crypto is driven by? It's driven by supply and demand. But is there any reason for anyone to to want to use these assets, right? Obviously, you're building a cash settled exchange. So, you know, people are not <laughs> settling in underlying assets. But are there real world use cases for crypto? Sure, absolutely. And I mean, uh, we're doing cash settle because we, we just want to build a regulated market infrastructure that that works well for, for institutional players. Uh, so, so that's our angle, but fundamentally, the, the asset class represents much more than just a speculative asset class. Uh, so, I was talking briefly about the adoption of the underlying technology, and and I think that is really the key here. Uh, if you look at yeah Ethereum, I take that example again. When you you basically have this whole new economy, this ecosystem of applications that are developed using that that blockchain, and and this is really sort of a technological revolution as we move towards adoption of, of blockchain and it becomes more sort of widely used, that's really where the, the use case for, for, crypto, for crypto comes, right? Uh, it's, it's really the input, the, the input and the output of, of all these technologies. So to me, that, that's really where the, the, value, uh, the value lies. And so where in crypto you know, are you most excited? What in crypto has you most excited right now? I would argue uh, large institutions coming in. Uh, I think this, re this will really change the, um, the way the, the asset class currently behaves. I think it's still a very young uh, asset class. And, and you see that by the, the, the cyclicality of yeah, price action, um, the magnitude of, 
of, of these market events is, is typically huge, but it is dampening over time. I think when large institutions come in, uh, we'll get an asset class that is uh, more robust to, uh, to, to events uh, and, and basically that will really have its uh, place next to the, the traditional asset classes. And so my final question for you, what is your hottest or most controversial take right now in crypto? I want controversy, Theo. I don't want, you know, I don't want a half-baked answer here. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I think, um, yeah, of course, I'm a bit biased because, because I'm in this space. I think uh, a lot of exchanges are uh, playing a very dangerous game. Uh, I think there will be a big backlash around the exchanges that have been playing this regulatory arbitrage game. Uh, some of them have done a, a great job at delivering an amazing product. Uh, I've got a lot of traction, but uh, at some point, I think you, you have to play by the rules. So uh, I would expect uh, uh, some uh, heavy uh, litigation in, in the coming uh, months and years for, for some of the players. I'm not going to name anyone, but uh, yeah, that's sort of my uh, take. And so, you so, know, finally, where can people find out more about you? Where can they follow you? Where can they follow D2X? And if somebody wants to be a counterparty on day one, when you reach out, how can they get to you? Yeah, so uh, you can reach me uh, on LinkedIn uh, or by email, theodore at d2x.com. Our website, uh, d2x.com, also uh, has, uh, has some information. And we're also uh, attending a few events, a few conferences. We'll be uh, at DAS in New York, uh, Token 2049 in Singapore, and DAS London as well. Uh, so anyone who uh, would like to, to know more about D2X can also meet us in person there. Awesome. It was great having you on, Theo, and I hope to do this again when you guys launch. Great. Thanks a lot.